If you have Bibles with you, please open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So last Sunday, I finished up my, uh, my series on living love. And uh, over those six messages, we explored various ways that we can uh, live love, love one another. And um, these are the six things I listed very quickly. The first is that we, a willingness to give up our need to be right. It's so much easier to love another person if we can give up our need to be right. Um, a very important way to live love is that first we live loved. Um, scripture says that we love because he first loved us. So to the degree that we can experience the Father's love for us, um, it's much easier that we can love one another. It's hard to draw from an empty well, isn't it? Um, third message in this series was uh, to see people as being in process. We're all in process. It's easier to have grace for someone if you're not judging how productive they are, but if you can view them with eyes of mercy and grace that realize, hey, you know what? They're still in process. Their story isn't completely written. And so that's helpful. Another helpful way to live love. We talked about encouragement. We talked about forgiveness. And in the last message in the series, we talked about honor. And I I listed three different ways that we can honor people. We can, uh, we can listen. Man, what a powerful and simple way to live love is to just listen to other people. Fully listen to them. Uh, random acts of kindness. I mean, anything from opening the car door to picking up the tab. And I listed a whole bunch of other ways. And then the last thing I mentioned uh, in living love was to be generous with our time. It might be the most precious commodity that we have nowadays, but to give other people our time. So, finished up that series last week. Tonight, uh, today, I want to, um, this morning, I want to begin a, a new series of messages uh, on the title of Mercy. I want to look at mercy, to, this morning specifically, I want to look at mercy and changing seasons. So, if you have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Scripture says that there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war. And time for peace. So I thank you for your word, the truth that's in your word. Well, I thank you that you have a timing. You actually have a rhythm and a timing. And I, help, I pray, Lord, that you would help us acclimate, be in sync with, walk in rhythm with your timing. Amen? So changing seasons. According to Ecclesiastes 3, our God who lives outside of time, has a time and a season for everything. 
The text could not make it any more clear <laughs> as the time and say, list about just every possible activity or category of activities you can imagine. And you know, with few exceptions, most places on the planet has we have changing seasons. There are very few places where the climate is constant year-round. Why is that? Why do seasons change? I mean, God could have he could have made it one temperature and one climate everywhere year-round if he wanted to, right? He's God. He could have done it that way. Why didn't he do it? Well, I'm sure there were scientific reasons that make you know, lots of good sense. But could it be that one of the reasons that God lets us live uh, surrounded by changing seasons is to communicate to us that, well, things change. Change happens in our midst. Seasons change. We can see change happening. Uh, it's, it's biblical. Change is biblical. There's not only Ecclesiastes 3, but there's some other just classic verses that communicate change. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. If, if this doesn't communicate change, I don't know what does. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? So if God asks you a question in Scripture, do you not perceive it? What does that mean? You're not perceiving the new thing that I'm doing, right? Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That's a good Old Testament biblical expression of change. New Testament. Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 uses the, the language of of wine and wineskins. He says, no one pours new wine into an old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine will burst and the the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So, is Jesus giving instructions here about wine production and storage? Or is he talking about change? I think he's just using wine and wineskins as a metaphor for change. Just there, this biblical language about change. I mean, Old and New Testaments, Old and New Covenants, just speaks of at one point it was this way, and another point it's a different way. Um, these are biblical terminologies communicating change. We see change replete throughout church history. Though Hebrews 13.8 is true, where it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, um, but how we do this thing we call church, well, that's changed. Um, that changes a lot. Even in our own lifetimes, what you're experiencing right here today, now, in this place, is probably different than what you've experienced in other places or what church was like when you were a child. Things change. Um, so church history is replete uh, with change. It's changed dramatically over the centuries. And I think that we're in the early stages of another significant change for the church. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about Charlottetown Community Church. I'm talking about the the whole church, the church, the church worldwide, worldwide. Now, why would I say that? That's a pretty bold statement, right? Well, why would I say that? It's for this reason. I read a lot, and I read across the theological spectrum. I enjoy things all the way from the, the most charismatic Pentecostal viewpoint all the way to the most you know, orthodox or you know, freshest, uh, emergent 
uh, expressions of what Christianity is supposed to be on the other spectrum. I read all of it. I enjoy all of it. I personally eat the meat and throw away the bones, right? I just take the best and, and leave the rest. And so <clears throat> when I read people from different streams, from different expressions of Christianity saying the same thing, <clears throat> it captures my attention. Right? I mean, we've had experiences in our lives. Have you ever gone through a day and you meet three different people and they all say basically the, maybe even the same phrase or they're communicating the same thing to you? It's like, it gets your attention. Like, hey, uh, maybe that means something. Or you know, maybe it's something insignificant. Like, hey, did you hear that such and such is going to happen in town? And Well, it kind of gets stuck in your head. Well, that's what happened to me. As I've, as I've read through these materials, as I've been exposed to these people who come from three very different streams of Christianity, they're communicating that the church as we know it is changing. It's got my attention. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. Now, the three people that I've gleaned from, they are so different in their approaches to faith that you would never see these three names listed at the same conference. They wouldn't be the same speakers at a conference. They would... They would speak at probably conferences, but you'd never see these three people together. It's highly unlikely. They just run in different ministry circles. And the three people are this. Maybe you're familiar with some of them. Wayne Jacobson, who I've talked about before, and we're doing a book club on his book, He Loves Me Now. Wayne Jacobson's one of the voices. Another is a woman by the name of Phyllis Tickle. This is a brilliant woman. And the third is a guy, a prophetic guy named Arthur Burke. They're all communicating in their own ways that the church, as we know it, is changing. Now, if you're the type of person who sits there and you like change, well, you're probably feeling thrilled right now, kind of all warm and fuzzy. If you don't like change, I'm just probably scaring the bejesus out of you as much as you're sitting there this morning. So these guys have three different perspectives, and I want to um, quickly share each perspective with you. Um, Wayne Jacobson, he has, his paradigm is relational. And he sees the church changing on a, on a relational level. He's strongly of the opinion that when we do this thing called church, that it's relationships and not religion. Wayne, is, is, Wayne Jacobson is passionately committed to helping people discover the joy and the freedom of relational Christianity. He champions change from institutional church structures to a more relational approach to God, with a special emphasis on the Father's love. Um, he's a well-sought-after speaker. He's the author of six different books, including He Loves Me, um, a novel titled So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore, another book called The Naked Church, and, uh, and, and others. As you know by now, I'm a big fan of Wayne Jacobson. I'm a big fan of his work. So from a relational perspective, Wayne Jacobson sees how we do this thing called church changing. So that's one paradigm. That's one voice. The, the next is, um, I want to reference is this woman named Phyllis Tickle. She comes from a historical paradigm. Um, if you follow me on Facebook, uh, if you follow our church's page on Facebook, I posted a, a video on Friday. It's about a 47-minute a presentation that um, Phyllis Tickle gave at a vineyard church in uh, Shoreline, uh, Washington, back in November of 2009. And it's titled, The Great Emergence. 
if you haven't watched that video, I, and if you're, especially if you're a fan of church history, I encourage you to watch it. Um, not only is it informative, she's a pretty entertaining uh, presenter. She did a really good job. And this woman, is there's weightiness to her. There's significance to her. She's the founding editor of the religious department of Publishers Weekly. She's a prolific author of over 25 books, including one of her newest books called The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. Um, she is an authority on religion in America and is a much sought-after af- sought lecturer on the subject. She is no academic lightweight. Um, she's a 70-something intellectual dynamo. She's just an amazing woman, just brilliant. I love watching her and just seeing the, um, the complete grasp of the information as she presented it. Just wonderful, really impressive. Well, she has a theory. As she has studied church history, her basic thesis is this, that the church throughout history goes through these 500-year cycles, um, approximately 500-year cycles. And she calls them, uh, every 500 years, the church goes through a rummage sale and clears out the old forms of spirituality and replaces them with the new. Um, this doesn't mean, from her perspective, it doesn't mean that the previous forms become obsolete or invalid. They simply lose what she refers to as their pride of place, as the dominant form of Christianity. And she uses as examples Constantine in the late 4th and 5th centuries, the Great Schism of the 11th century, the Reformation uh, in the 16th century, and now, the postmodern, in this postmodern era, the 21st century, um, all of these are just reference points of radical change that happens in these 500-year cycles in the church. And so Phyllis Tickle believes that we're at the beginning of a new 500-year cycle, life cycle in the church. And what is giving way right now is Protestantism at least in the form that we know it. And she believes that what's emerging is a new form of Christianity. What she's referring to in her book is the great emergence. At this point, it's so early in its development that we can only guess what form it'll eventually take. But she does say that Protestantism, in all of its denominational forms, is losing influence and is giving way to alternative forms of Christian expression. She makes a very convincing uh, historical argument for her position in that video. Again, I encourage you to watch it. So Wayne Jacobson, from a relational perspective, uh, sees how we do this thing called church changing. Well, Phyllis Tickle, again, from an entirely different paradigm, a historical paradigm, uh, sees how this thing we call church is changing. These guys would probably never be in a conference together. Okay, you probably never see them on stage together. Well, he's a third voice. This is a prophetic guy named Arthur Burke. Anybody ever heard of Arthur Burke? Probably not. He's not nearly as famous as some of the other prophetic ministers that are out there. He's, I mean, I've known lots of prophetic people. They're, you know, don't you know, they're out-of-the-box kind of people. Arthur Burke is even a little bit more out-of-the-box than most. But he's a thinker. What he runs is a group called the Sapphire Leadership Group, and they're basically, for lack of better terminology, they are a prophetic think tank. A small group of people, 
They kind of feel led to something. They study it. A whole bunch come up with some insights, kind of put the information in an open source format out there and let other people run with it. Um, he's extraordinarily gifted, and he's just a brilliant man. And so um, Arthur Burke, in his own way, but from a prophetic paradigm where Phyllis Tickle is historical and, and Wayne Jacobs is, is relational, Arthur Burke is looking at this from a prophetic paradigm. And so he identifies, like Phyllis Tickle, he sees seasons of historical change in the church. He looks at it a little bit differently. And he identifies these seasons of change throughout church history using language from Romans 12, 6 to 8 using the language of the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit that are listed in Romans 12. Let me just read those verses to you, verses 6 to 8 from Romans 12, where it says, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, then let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give. Generously, if it's leadership, let him govern or rule generously, uh, diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit, if you've studied this before, that's common terminology for the gifts of the Spirit out of Romans 12. Those seven gifts are, are these. I just read it's prophet, servant, teacher, encourager, giver, ruler, and mercy. Those are the seven gifts. And so from Arthur Burke's paradigm... These seven gifts of the Spirit parallel seven seasons throughout church history. Just another way of looking at the same thing. And so he sees the prophet gift as expressed in the apostolic era, in the early church. The servant season lasted um, throughout two centuries of the persecution. The teacher gift flourished during the huge Masonic age. The, the exhorter season was the Renaissance. The giver season was the great century of missions. The ruler season roughly, according to his research, roughly paralleled the 20th, 20th century. And he believes that we've just entered a new season. In the 21st century, we've entered into what he refers to as the mercy season. That the church is in um, a significant change between going from the ruler season of the 20th century to the mercy season of the 21st century. So I've said all of this so far to get you to this point, that not only do these guys think that there's change, Phyllis Tickle sees it historically, Wayne Jacobs sees it, sees it relationally, Arthur Burke sees it prophetically, and um, they see it changing from one season to the other. So I, all three voices that I've enjoyed reading their books, reading their articles, listening to uh, audio or video presentations of them speak, they all point into a change right now. What I like about Arthur Burke's information is he identifies a little bit more specifically what that change is. What does it look like? He sees us going from what he calls a ruler season to a mercy season. And he says that this is, this is no little thing. This is a profound change. He makes this statement, quoting Arthur Burke, that the Protestant Reformation looks like child's play in comparison to the paradigm shift now at hand. 
Well, if you're any student of church history, if the Reformation was child's play compared to this, that's a profound statement. Maybe it's the greatest upheaval we've had in the church um, in our, our, well, 500 years, but in our recent past, as opposed to looking to the whole of it. Now, I know from my own study and from my own life experience that historically, that the last move of God attacks, rejects and attacks the next move of God. Right? The last move of God, we've invested all this time and energy and resources and the building up what God's called us to do. And this, how dare he? God has a fresh move of God and it's different than what we did before and it just messes up all our stuff. And so the last move usually feels threatened by the new move. They reject it, they attack it. I think even a light study of church history will bear that out. I don't want to do that. I, don't, I was raised up in the last move. I want to embrace the next move. Not only do I personally want to embrace it, I feel a personal challenge to, to father it, to, to embrace it, to, to nurture it, to help it along, to take whatever I've learned from the past and help give into whatever the next thing that God's doing. That sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds a whole lot better than... I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about you know, our own imagination. I'm talking about God. God's doing something new. If he's doing it, I want to help it be part of whatever it is that he's doing. I don't want to reject it or attack it. So, so just like uh, Wayne Jacobson and Phil Tickle saw changes from their paradigm or their perspective, Arthur Burke, from a perspective, uh, prophetic perspective, sees how we do this thing we call church changing. Wayne Jacobson... Phil Sickle, Arthur Burke, three very different people from three very different streams, all communicating the same thing. Change. You see why it's captured my attention. So I have good news and bad news for you today. <laughs> the good news is that the old has passed away, the news come. <laughs> the bad news is that the old has passed away and the news come. It just has to do with your perspective on change. You know? And, you know, even our church, in a smaller way, we've experienced a taste of this change here. Brian and Donna have, have moved on, and Nadine and I have come. Hey, that's no small thing for a church to change from its founding pastor to bringing in a new pastor. That's a big change. So we've tasted some of it here. So just to, just to communicate this concept of change a little bit more, let me, let me use a hypothetical analogy, Okay. The weather has changed here on Prince Edward Island. It's changed since Nadine and I first visited in July. Last July, the search committee took us to Brackley Beach one afternoon. We're not going to Brackley this afternoon, okay? We had a great time in July. Man, we had some of the best fish and chips out over there that I've ever had in my whole life. It was amazing, right? It was a great day. We had beach chairs out and digging our feet in the sand, looking at the water. Great conversation. But, you know... It got down to minus 18 Celsius last night, and it's going to get down to minus 18 tonight as well. So Brackley Beach is not on our agenda anytime soon. We have to adjust to the change of seasons. So unlike seven months ago, we have lots of snow on the ground here on PEI today. Many of you are wearing sweaters and sweatshirts and jackets. I don't see any flip-flops here today. Nobody came in the flip-flops. Outside and inside... Things have changed. I can't do what I did last summer. Why? Because the seasons have changed. But 
What if I don't like change? Let's say I'm a summer person. I like summer better than I like winter. So what do you think if because I like summer so much better, if I got up this morning in this room and I turned off the heat and I turned on the air conditioning full blast, what would happen? Well, some of you ladies would freeze up pretty quickly, right? I'd see you buttoning up your jackets and zipping up and pretty quick. And if it actually got cold enough in here, some of you guys would leave, right? But wait a minute. I'm the pastor. I'm the pastor. I have authority. I could put on the air conditioning if I want to. I have the keys to the building. I have the know-how. I have the position. I have the title. I have the authority. Get up, turn off the heat, and turn on the AC. All, all because I prefer a different season, right? No. Even with this knowledge, position, and authority, it'd still be wrong for me to turn off the heat and turn on the air conditioning in this season, right? That makes sense. But that's the way I've always done it throughout the summer. Each Sunday morning, I get up, I go to church, I unlock the doors, turn off the alarm, turn on the lights, pull out the equipment, set up the chairs, turn on the air conditioning. I always turn on the air conditioning on Sunday morning. This is the way I've always done it. If I turned off the heat now and turned on the AC, would it be the right thing to do? No, it wouldn't be the right thing to do. But the fact that I'm the pastor make it any more right? No, <laughs> it wouldn't make it any more right. Would the fact that this is the way I've always done it make it any more right? No, that wouldn't make it any more right either. Of course not. Why? The seasons have changed. And like it or not, I have to change with the seasons. Because the seasons have changed, and it's cold outside, I can't put the air conditioner on in here. But, I mean, it's a ridiculous analogy, right? I'm, I'm using hyperbole for a reason. All too often, though, in how we do church, we ignore the change of seasons. As if we are always, you know, we just always operate this way. We always put on the air conditioning. So we get here this morning, by God... <laughs> We're going to put on the air conditioning. It's what we do every week. So we'll put it on today. And if people leave the church, the answer isn't to change with the seasons. The answer is, I know, we'll just work harder. I'll tell Garfield and Wayne, not only do I want the air conditioner blowing full blast this week, but I want you guys to punch a hole in the wall, put another big unit in there, and get here early next Sunday morning and put that thing on so it's really good and cold in here. Because we always put air conditioning on. That would be a foolish response, wouldn't it? Just because we always put the air conditioner on. Or how about this? But Tom, you don't understand. I like air conditioning. My father installed that air conditioning unit. I've been, ten, I've been here 10 years, and we always use air conditioning on Sunday mornings. And then we'd wonder why the church building was empty. Why wouldn't we consider changing how we do what we do? Because the seasons have changed. All right, so I played out this analogy to a ridiculous point, to make a point. And the point is this. Just as we need to change with the natural seasons, we need to change with the spiritual seasons. If people like Wayne Jacobson, Phyllis Tickle, and Arthur Burke are right, the spiritual seasons have changed. 
And God really is doing a new thing. And one of the ways it's communicated is the change from this ruler season to the mercy season. Let me identify what each one of those seasons have looked like to give some context for us. Each season has a distinctives. The ruler season was marked by learning how to build at unprecedented levels. By contrast, the mercy season is marked by people who are intimate with God. In the ruler season that's lasted the last hundred years, um, the church learned spiritual warfare. It learned how to build and how to fight. Religious laws and rules and regulations governed the church. In the 70s and 80s, there was great stress on unity. Institutional unity was highly valued. We saw the birth of intercessors. And they were a blessing to the church. There was a lot of cross-pollination, intercessor to intercessor, from different churches and different denominations. And they really helped bring some cross-pollinization I think was healthy and good for the church. Ruler season was good. Good things happened in the ruler season. But just to repeat Arthur Burke's quote, the Protestant Reformation looks like child's play in comparison to the paradigm shift that's at hand. Hey, they killed people during the during the Reformation. If that was child's play, it sobers me. Now, nearly every one of us here today, we were born and raised in the ruler season. The former season is going to have a strong, a very strong gravitational pull on our lives. It's the way we've always done things. It's not going to be easy to shift and change. The ruler season speaks a different language than the mercy season. It has different values. It has different priorities. The ruler season was designed to pull together a team of people to, to accomplish complicated tasks. And it did very well. And the ruler season has about 100 years of momentum behind it. Much, if not all of the training, conferences, church growth, church planting materials available today, they were birthed in the ruler season, and operate under a ruler season momentum. It can easily, listen guys, it can easily roll on lifelessly for years to come, just like so many other moves of God before it. The ruler season isn't bad, it isn't evil, it's just over. It had its time, and it's done. We're in a new season. And the language I'm using today is the mercy season. It's a new spiritual season beginning in the early 21st century. And here are some of the characteristics that identify it. It's marked by intimacy with God and a message of the Father's love. Now, Arthur Burke wrote this before Wayne Jacobson ever wrote the book about the Father's love. They're both hearing the same thing. It's a change from doing to being. It's a change from the Martha season to the Mary season. You know what I mean when I say Martha season, Mary season? Luke 10, 38 to 43, where Jesus has an encounter with Martha and Mary, and Martha's all bent out of shape. She got work to do. She got stuff to do. And, and Mary, all she's doing is she's sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's like, hey, Martha says, Jesus, would you tell Mary to give me a hand? And he says, hey, she picked a better portion. The ruler season was Martha. Mercy season is Mary. The better portion? The better portion is to sit at Jesus' feet. It's to be intimate with God.
With this change taking place from a ruler to mercy season, from a Martha to Mary season, it's going to be very difficult to maintain some or even much of what was built in the ruler season. And for those who still operate as though it were the ruler season, it's going to upset them because they spent a long time building what they built. Additional characteristics of the mercy season. I think fathering is one of them. A new season will bring a revelation of the father, the father heart of God. I think another characteristic of this mercy season is adulthood. You know, there's a, there's a massive change from being spiritual children to being spiritual adults. And don't you know that if you're a spiritual adult and you're treated like a spiritual child, you don't like it, Right? Children need lots of oversight and control. Adults don't. Adults don't need to be controlled in the same way that children are. So we need to learn how to operate, how to relate to God as adults, not as slaves, not as servants, not as children, but as adults. I I like to use this analogy. When my kids were home, it was my son's responsibility to empty the garbage. There was one main garbage can in the kitchen. It was his job to empty the garbage. And I told him, I said, look, this is your job. If there's garbage in there that needs to be emptied, I just want the job done. I said, it's your responsibility. If I have to tell you, Tom, the garbage can is full. Right? And now what I want you to do is walk over to the can, remove the lid. Once you remove the lid, grab the bag, pull it out of the can, tie it in a knot. Now take that bag, go outside, open the trash container, throw the bag in it, close the lid in the trash container, come back in the house. And when you come back in the house, what I want you to do is go under the sink, take out a new bag, plastic bag, open it up, put it in the can, replace the lid. And oh, if anything spilt on the floor, take care of that too. If I had to tell him every detail each step of the way, is there any maturity being expressed there? Is there any responsibility being expressed there? No, I'm treating him like a child. But if I walk into the kitchen and the, and the can is empty, He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's taking mature responsibility as an adult. That makes sense, doesn't it? I think that's, that's a really good analogy of the changing seasons. Where we own our relationship with God. We don't wait for somebody else to tell us each step of the way, every ridiculous detail about what we're supposed to do. We have a God who is our Father, and he loves us, and we're in relationship with him. And we relate as an adult to our Father. Now, for those of you who have older children, don't you know it's different parenting adult children than it is parenting young children? If I have a 29 and 27-year-old, if I treated them at 29 and 27 like I did when they were 9 and 7, they would be very upset with me, and rightly so. They're grown-ups now. If we've changed to a new season, and God views us as adults, how we interact with him how we function in our relationship with him and how we function together is going to make a shift as well. Rulers in the ruler season, with their rules, by their nature, like to tell other people what to do and what not to do. And so we still have lots of churches today that operate that way. And I see that changing. Another characteristic of the mercy season is intimacy. 
the basis of authority in the ruler season was unity. And I don't think that God is any longer honoring that in the mercy season. There's a new basis of authority, and it's this. It's intimacy. Love is the hallmark. Trying to lead with old sources of authority will merely lead to frustration for both the leader and the follower. It's like having adult kids and treating them like a kid. It'll require that we choose not to violate love. And it's part of the reason why I spent so long when I first got here speaking on the topic of love. Those people who get saved, who come to have a relationship with Christ in the mercy season, will largely reject the rules, the religious rules and regulations of the ruler season. The mercy season will be mocked by people smelling of the fragrance of Christ. Why? Because you pick up the aroma or the fragrance of those that you're intimate with. I remember the first boy-girl party I ever went to. I was like 12 years old. And they had slow dancing there. I slow danced with a girl for the first time. Right? I remember coming home that night, and um, I walk in the door, and my mother looks at me and says, you were dancing with Teresa tonight. I was like, how do you know that? She says, because you reek of the perfume that she wears. Right? We will pick up the aroma of those that we're intimate with. If we're intimate with God, we'll carry his fragrance with us. That's a good thing. I think books like The Shack or So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore or Wayne Jacobson's He Loves Me, I think that these are mercy season books. That's why there's so much life on them right now. Let's see. Other things. that I think redeeming the culture is going to be part of the, of the mercy season. Things like what the, the ministry that's being done at events like Burning Man or some of the dream interpretation outreach stuff I've done. I think these are mercy season activities. I think the mercy season is not so much focusing on corporate identity or commitment to building the institution as much as it is a focus on you as a person and your personal intimate relationship with God Father. In the rule of season, we were concerned with building the institution. In the mercy season, the focus is building on each individual person. I think rest is another hallmark of the mercy season. Mercy is the seventh redemptive gift of the Spirit. Paralleling the seven days of creation, the seventh day was rest. In the mercy season, we see results Usually disproportionate to our effort. We put in 10 pounds of effort, we see 100 pounds of result. But there's a problem. Most of us were born in a ruler season, and now the game has changed. The rules have changed. Some things will carry over, some things won't. It's a massive change spiritually. All right, we have personal preferences. Does your personal preference for summer? make any difference to the fact that now it's winter? None, right? You may prefer summer. Matter of fact, I'd be willing to bet almost everybody who lives on PEI that we prefer summer the winter. But it's winter. You see, not you. There are exceptions. But the seasons have changed. And whether or not we have a personal preference for the ruler season over the mercy season, if the, if the seasons have changed, they've changed. 
much of what I've read is saying that people in North America are leaving churches in mass. One statistic I read said that a million, this is from George Bonner, a million people a month are leaving uh, organized religion in North America. A million people a month? Holy cow, that's... I mean, in any business that you were running, if you were running a corporation and you were losing a million customers a month, something's wrong. You've got to change something. Something's already changed and you've missed it if you're losing a million people a month. I think the seasons have changed <laughs> and the people are catching it and the church leaders aren't. And we're seeing the result. They're voting with their feet. Now, some pastors might say, well, they're backsliding. Well, maybe some of them are, but not a million people a month. Not a million people a month. You've got to start looking at yourself, buddy, and say, what's going on here? What you, God, what are you doing? I think God's doing a new thing. I think the seasons have changed. And we need to adjust, not what we believe, I think that remains the same. But how we do what we do, I think all of that needs to be on the table and subject to change so that we can be in step with God. God, what are you doing? And how do we do it with you? If the spiritual seasons have changed from a ruler season to a mercy season, and I'm just using Arthur Burke's language because it helps me give me something to communicate. If you don't like that terminology, we can come up with others. You can name the seasons whatever you want. But if we've changed from a ruler season to a mercy season, and the church doesn't change, doesn't change along with it, we can't blame people for leaving because they don't want air conditioning in the wintertime. Right? They're not bad people. We're stubborn leaders. We have to change with the seasons. Almost done. Quote from John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard. He said, church history reveals a cycle in which the homesteaders of one renewal movement persecute the pioneers of the most recent move. In this case, the homesteaders are the ruler season and the pioneers are the mercy season. I don't want to persecute the mercy season people. I want to embrace them. I want to join them. I want to help lead them. One other quote. Maybe you've heard of this philosopher, Medal of Freedom winner, Eric Hoffer. It's a great quote. He says, in times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Let me say that again. That quote's worth repeating. In times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. We need to be learners in this new season, not the learned rulers of the last season, beautifully equipped to deal with a world, a spiritual world, that no longer exists around us. So let us pray and ask God to help us transition from one season to the next. 
I want to, I've used this message as a form of introduction into this new series, Mercy. If, if Arthur Burke is right, that we're entering what he's defined as the mercy season, if Phyllis Tickle is right, that we're at a 500-year cycle and we're entering into this new postmodern age, uh, emergent church age, if Wayne Jacobson is right, that there's a shift from institutional religion to relational um, communities, I want to make that change with them. And so I've, 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 I've grasped the term, the terminology of a mercy season. And so with that in mind, saying that seasons have changed, if it is a mercy season, if Arthur Burke is right, then I'd like to take the next few weeks and look at what Scripture has to say about mercy. Because I think there'll be clues, I think there'll be insights that will help us shift better into the new thing that God's doing. That makes sense? I don't know, it just seems logical to me. So I hear three different voices from three different streams saying the same thing. I, I know, in my spirit it feels like it's right. I think God's changing things. And most of us, if we're honest, unless we're controlling the change, we're not really too happy about it. You know? So I want to help us in this. And I think one of the ways we could do that is get a better understanding of what mercy is. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, for what you did. Lord, I pray that you would help us as the seasons, as the spiritual seasons change from what was to what is. Lord, if we really are, if Phyllis Tickle's right, and we really are at the beginning of a new 500-year cycle in what you do with your church, then I pray that we would be moldable clay in your hands. Lord, I pray that we would be um, teachable and that we would be changeable. I ask that you would have your way with us, just like, boy, I like that image of the potter and the clay. Lord, put us on your wheel. I ask that both your hands would be on us, that you'd press your thumbs into us, that you'd shape us and mold us and make us what you want us to be. Let it be fully your creation. Lord, I pray that in the, the weeks ahead that you would instruct us and inspire us that you enlarge our God box we can learn more of who you are and what you're doing I ask this in Jesus name Amen